always depended on the kindness of strangers. All right, so he's not a regular rat or, or even a super rat. He's a scared little mouse, that's all. Ha, I had two years to grow claws, Mother. Jungle Ray! Hello, and welcome to The Real Woman, a podcast about all things cinematic. I am your host, Emmanuel Perryman. Today, I am joined by two guests, Michael Niederman and Daniel McCoy. Michael Niederman is a theater maker, filmmaker, and educator. Proudly born and raised in New York City, his work has been performed at Theater Row, the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, the Workshop Theater, the Bowery Poetry Club, the Actors Studio Theater in New York, and New York Stage and Film. In recent years, his work has won the Samuel French Short Play Series and has been presented by Blue Box Productions, Brain Melt Consortium, Mason Holdings, Ignited States, and New York Madness. He regularly participates in the Primary Stages Writer's Lab, the Fleas Pataphysics, and the Actors Studio Director's Lab. His screenwriting and directing work has won awards from Columbia University's Faculty Selects, the Broadcast Education Association, and the National Association of Latino Independent Producers. When not creating theater or film, he spends most of his time as a private writing tutor, working with children and adults of all ages from all parts of the globe. Joining him is Daniel McCoy, a playwright and performer also based in New York City, whose work has been produced and developed recently with Theater Lab, Primary Stages, Project Y Theater, Iyadi Theater, Dutch Kills Theater, and Simple Machine Theater. He is an alumni member of the Project Y Playwrights Group and the Cementos Play Development Program at Iadi Theater. As an ensemble member of the New York Neo-Futurists, Daniel has written and performed in The Great American Drama, Mute, Unafraid, and the long-running late-night shows The Infinite Wrench and Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind. He directs every spring for the Wrightopia Lab Worldwide Plays Festival, showcasing the work of young playwrights. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Annie. Hi, you're having us. So happy to be here. So excited to be here. I'm so glad to have you. We've been trying to get this together for a little while, so I'm glad this worked out. Yeah, we're really excited. So let's dive right in. I have a lot of questions, but before I jump into the questions, I just want to provide a little background for people. You guys do a show called Whiskey Flicks. Yes, we do. Tell me, just tell me a little bit about that. Well, Whiskey Flicks has sort of been a long gestating uh, podcast and live show that Dan and I developed, I think, four years ago now was the first uh, attempt at a podcast. And we've done uh, public access shows and um, recorded podcasts. Like, we used to, and we had a, uh, Whiskey Flicks was a midnight movie podcast, so we recorded 
our shows at 3 o'clock in the morning after seeing Midnight Movies in the streets of New York. And then two years ago, 2019, we had our first live performance of it as part of the SoFi Festival, uh, Whiskey Flicks Live, The King of New York, where we looked at movies of New York City and our relationships to them. My, myself as a native New Yorker and Dan as a transplant. And then we had another live show, Something Whiskey This Way Comes, which was our Halloween episode. And then when COVID hit, we went online. And um, Dan, how many shows have we had online up until now? At last count, 22. My goodness, 22. Uh, and counting. We have some more coming up. Uh, and the way the show works, I mean, is I, before each and every performance, compile a secret a playlist of movie clips that I pull off of YouTube and I theme around some sort of subject, whether it be um, something that's happening in the world right now or something thematic in terms of a year in film or a holiday or a general sort of mood. And I present those to Mike, who has no idea what I'm going to show him, and he reacts to them in sort of a live reaction in real time. Yeah, uh, providing social commentary, personal narrative, film cred, and it's just sort of a seat of the pants, film nerd out reaction extravaganza with whiskey. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really get much better than that. No, absolutely. And uh, it's the unscripted criticism and unscripted analysis comes from, I think, at one point, Dan said that one of his favorite things is just how I describe movies. And that was the seed that for this uh, creative partnership. We have a our first live show in over a year and a half coming up next Friday. Um, this coming Friday, because it's Saturday today. This coming Friday, the 28th, at the City Reliquary, which is in Williamsburg. And uh, we're going to be doing that outside for a small audience, and I couldn't be more excited. That and sounds by the time awesome. Your podcast drops, depending on what your turnaround is, it may already have happened. So it, maybe yeah. Describing something that happened in the past. And, and 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 dear audience, that show was amazing. Oh my god, it was the best. <laughs> was, it was the best show ever. It's very Doctor Who of us. You should have been there. All of you listening right now should have been there last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with you? So you missed it. the the episode the 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 whiskey flicks episode that I was lucky enough to to get to see dealt with cult films. Yes. And and that was the topic that you chose for this episode. So my first question is, what do we mean when we say cult film? What makes a film a cult film? What's the definition of a cult movie? Ah. Uh. I mean, that's what we struggled with when we were working on our cult movie episode, uh, Midnight Madness. Um, it's, a, it's a weird alchemy of not being a mainstream hit, having a following, um, being offbeat, off-kilter B-movie, um, or an art movie. Dan, uh, what, else, what else makes something cult? Uh, to me, to me what makes violence. a... What makes a movie cult is a film that, like you said, is not is not a box office success when it's first released. That doesn't necessarily get a lot of critical acclaim or awards, but that over time develops a fandom and a loyal audience uh, that gives it 
gives it longevity, that gives it legs. I think a really good example of that, you know, would be I, obviously the sort of uh, prototypical mid uh, cult classic is is the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which you know when it was first released uh, didn't make much of a splash, but then over the course of time, you know, with the the live performances and the midnight showings, to this day, you know, has a rabid fandom. It's almost like a rite of passage to go to a Rocky Horror show. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember I I really wanted to go to the Rocky Horror Picture Show when I was a teenager in New York City in the 90s. And my parents wouldn't let me. They wouldn't let me stay out that late. Um, so I desperately wanted that rite of passage. And then when I finally went, once I turned 18, just fell in love with it. And... I think that's it. It's it, 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 the, these cult movies are movies that, for whatever audience we're talking about, there's something that we can identify with. I'm thinking of the scene in um, the Velvet Goldmine, um, where uh, God, it was not Ewan McGregor's character, um, Christian Bale. Christian Bale. No, well, well, yeah, but who, who's the rock star? Oh, yeah. John Rhys Davies. Yeah, John Rhys Davies is on TV, and Christian Bale is a teenager at that point. Um, watching him on TV in his glam glory, and he turns around to his dad and he says, that's me, dad. That's me. And it's that real, just urgent identification that I think is really makes something a cult film. So you see yourself in the experience of watching the movie. So that leads me into my next question, which is the specific topic for today was not just cult films, but cult films that have a basis in Greek mythology. And so we, uh, Dan chose Xanadu, uh, you, Michael, chose The Warriors, and I came up with Clash of the Titans. And so inspired, thank you for that. And I I hadn't seen Clash of the Titans since I was a small child, so thank you for that. You're welcome. But my question is, Clash of the Titans actually did really well when it came out. It was like 11th at the box office for that year. Like, it actually did really well. It got good reviews. I think Roger Ebert gave it like three stars. So good, Wait, wait, no, 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 no. Um, it got good reviews? Yeah. Wow, because it, I just watched it again as an adult, and I'm going, wow, okay. Many times during the watching of the movie. <laughs> It actually, well, like Ray Harryhausen's work yeah. was was complimented, and they basically said this is it's a fun adventure film. So my question is, does Clash of the Titans does that make the cut as a cult film if it actually did well at the box office? I mean, mm, mm, that's a really good question. Like, I, I'm thinking of. Like movies like Invention of Life or Johnny Guitar. Right. Which I can't really speak to their box office. I have no idea. But I know that they were discovered years after they came out by maybe not the intended audiences. And I'm not saying that's what happened with Class of the Titans, but that might be something when a movie is successful, but then it finds um, it's not always success. And I think. Titanic. No one would ever claim that Titanic is this unknown underground film. But part of the reason for its phenomenal success is that it found it really touched a nerve with audiences. It, and people yeah. kept going back and going back. 
Yeah. So, Not yeah. with me, but I know a lot of people love it. Yeah. yeah I, I saw it when it came out. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not made out of stone. It works. I, I, I'm entertained. But some people freaking loved it. Yeah. So I I'm think- not saying it's a cult movie, but it's something. It's definitely yeah, I mean, something. It's necessarily label Clash of the Titans as a cult film per se, but it certainly had a fandom. And there is, it certainly does have a following. And I think the reason that I leapt on that as, as the proper film to sort of line up with The Warriors and with Xanadu is number one, the time frame. All of these movies were released within two years of each other. Right. These were all, uh, you know, on a continuum from like 1979 to 1981. And, you know, with, with The Warriors, we have, you know, based on a book that's a very loose adaptation of the Persian expedition by Xenophon, and then Xanadu, which is based on the myth of the muses. Uh, both of which are, are contemporary films um, and yeah. also what excited me about lining those two up were the shared uh, stardom of Michael Beck which are the only two uh, major films that uh, we remember him from yeah, Unless, yeah. Really oh, yeah. any other uh, after that and also and the sort of New York versus LA of that time and how, yes. and how it was how it was seen in in those movies uh, and so the, the addition of Clash of the Titans which is a rather sort of faithful and if we're going to go Greek, say? might as just go real Greek. And, yeah. uh, and so it Get just, you know, up in there. presents a rather sort of a pastiche of, of the legend of, of Perseus and, and other myths uh, sort yes. of put into a blender. And to connect uh, it further to uh, the Warriors and especially Xanadu, the fucking hair. Harry <laughs> uh, yes. Hamlin's being uh, stung lips and feathered head really just, it, 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 it rivals... Michael Beck's do in Xanadu. <laughs> and I'm just watching both of them going, I just could watch them just uh, shake their heads and run to a place and stop and look into middle distance all day long. I know, I they're like an ad for Vidal Sassoon. I was a six-year-old gay boy in 1981. I didn't even know I was a six-year-old gay boy. I knew I was six. Uh, but, I knew when I was, but I knew when I was watching Harry Hamlin in Clash of the Titans, like something was awakening already. <laughs> something felt cool. My goodness. Oh my and, goodness. And see that is prime that. prime beef. And that's what I'm talking about, Dan, is that you were watching Clash of the Titans and then you turned to your conservative parents and you said, That's me, Mom. That's me. And Emmy, I mean, no. you've seen Dan on the on the video. Yes. You know that right now Daniel McCoy He's really working hard on his own too. Incorrect, Michael. Incorrect. I turned to my parents and said that that's me. That's me. Whenever Pegasus was on screen, <laughs> yes. I absolutely identified with Pegasus. Pegasus. So if we're talking about Clash of the Titans and we're talking about the animals, Athena had a in mythology. Athena did have an owl. But I don't think there was ever a mechanical owl built by Hephaestus in the actual myth of no. Perseus. And so it's that sort of stuff of the Albert Broccoli style, fuck it, let's just toss it in there. Mechanical owl, it'll be cute. I think they were trying to R2-D2 it up. Absolutely trying to R2-D2 it up. I, to, to the point where not understanding what makes R2-D2 so successful and a mechanical owl fighting a kraken because that happens right yeah right. less so to his credit the, the mechanical owl also leads them to the to the stygian witches and also frees pegasus 
Yeah, so he does He does prove his worth. Oh, and he does pick up Medusa's head. He picks up the head in the, in the, in the water and brings it to Perseus. See, Boo was definitely on R2-D2 level in terms of, like, being underestimated, but then uh, sort of saving the day. But I'm going to say that Boo Boo was R2-D2 level, but only in the prequels. Because in those movies, they gave R2-D2 just so many tricks and powers. <laughs> what? It, it, it can fly now? Okay, fine. And uh, right, they, right. they went a little bit too far in that direction. That's what Boo Boo... Boo I'm not attacking Boo Boo. I'm not trying to hate on Boo Boo. He's not the Jar Jar Binks. No, no, he is not the Jar Jar Binks of uh, Clash of the Titans. Um, <laughs> I would argue the Jar Jar Binks of Clash of the Titans is, I um, don't know the name of the actor, but um, whoever played Poseidon. His expression every time he unleashed the Kraken was just the, like, I can't believe I just did that. <laughs> but I decided you should be surprised at his one job. I'm sorry, if Poseidon is in awe of anything, there's a problem here. Because you're fucking Poseidon, and it's you and Zeus and Hades. You are the top three gods who are the Titans' kids. I'm sorry, you're basically equal to Zeus. The only reason why you're not Zeus is because you like swimming. (laughs) In this movie, he has one job. And he does that job twice, at the beginning and the end, that is to release the Kraken. And when he releases the Kraken successfully both times... Good job. That is his job. Good job. Good job. You can't believe it. I've got a Kraken? <laughs> and I like that he was in the, the Greek robes, in the robes underwater. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the second time he releases the Kraken, he's tiny compared to the Kraken. Oh, yeah. Like, like he, he's, he's human-sized. And, and I'm going to go one step further with this scene. He keeps the Kraken in a in a locked up cage like in, in a tunnel in in a, in a mountain underwater that's um, closed with a port escape and that's not I always felt that you gotta summon the Kraken not let it out of, into the yard um, <laughs> and then at the beginning obviously not at the end because it gets spoilers it gets uh, medusa but at the beginning do we spoilers see the Kraken, for a 4,000 year old myth <laughs> do we see the Kraken go back into the cage like no he, it, it, tur- it turns into a, it turns into stone it, it, no at the beginning at the beginning when it destroys oh, the Argos yeah he, he cracks the Kraken no I, I guess I, I don't know how he gets the Kraken here back. Kraken 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 is that, <laughs> is that the scene that got cut I mean so, did, I do, do you have like uh, Kraken begging strips or something like that is there like an underwater whistle that um, he whistles maybe to? he's just just cause he's a god he can just sort of control it maybe it's some sort of mind control situation <laughs> No, and then when oh, the Kraken returns, Poseidon's like, "Oh my goodness, I can't believe what I just I mean, did." I'm, I'm afraid. Sorry, I have to, I have to disagree with you. Um, all he does is open the door. Literally, you see him turn a, a wench, wrench, in, in the second time it releases it. I think release the Kraken. He's just the one. It's basically, can you let the dog out? But I mean, to get him back in, how's he get him back in? That's what I was asking. I'm saying maybe it's a mind control situation to get him back in. I don't know. These are well, these are the questions. Eddie, <laughs> this has already turned into an episode of Whiskey. If only the library of Alexandria was not destroyed, we would know how you get a Kraken back in its hands. And the, the funny thing for me, actually, about the Kraken is, I mean, the movie is called Clash of the Titans, but yeah. the Kraken is not actually Greek. He's not a Titan. He's, he's, 
No, he's the Kraken is actually from Norwegian mythology, I believe. What? He's not even Greek. What? Well, listen to this. This is, this is what kind of, this is how good I am at doing my homework. I, uh, I took this opportunity to pull my Edith Hamilton off the shelf uh, and investigate the, the myth of Perseus. Uh, and I just read through it. And the Kraken actually does not make an appearance in, in the original Greek myth, which came from several sources, which, which Hamilton sort of stitched together for, for her mythology book. But in the uh, Greek myth, Perseus, you know, is the son of Zeus through, through Danai, who is put in, the, put in the box and sent out to sea, just like in the movie, but then she washes up on the shore. And it is the ruler of that island who falls in love with uh, Perseus's mom after several after after a number of years once he's sort of come of age and uh, he announces that he is going to be married doesn't say to who and Perseus is ashamed that he doesn't have a proper wedding gift because he's poor and Perseus says to uh, the ruler whose uh, name I'm forgetting already he says what do you want I'll get you anything and he says bring me the head of a gorgon and so he somehow finds his way to the statue of witches, and they're like, here's where the Gorgons are. Medusa's the only one who can die. The other ones are immortal. Good luck. Athena gives him the mirror shield and the helmet that turns him invisible and all of the, all of the accoutrement that he has in the film. And he goes and he slays Medusa, gets the head. Uh, on his way back, he happens upon... Andromeda, who was chained to the rock, awaiting the sea serpent because her mom, because because Cassiopeia shot her mouth off and right. got uh, got the the uh, the Maggie Smith god uh, pissed off at her, and so she's chained there. Such a minor god, such a and minor god. Her only purpose, like in the myths, she's Achilles' mom, but she's the main antagonist in this, at least godlike antagonist. Sorry, Dan, I interrupted, but... And so, uh, just very quickly, because this is already uh, a long story, he frees Andromeda, brings her back home, and encounters his dad, who originally sent them off to uh, off to sea in the box. Oh, yeah, because there was a prophecy at Delphi that his son would kill him. Sure enough, that's what happens. He marches in uh, and presents Medusa's head to his father to... Uh, what is that name? Acrisius, who's the one who Zeus kills at the beginning of the movie, and Medusa's him instead. So that's kind of how the how the Perseus myth. Interesting, goes, uh, interesting. Well, I kind of I kind of thought that again. I kind of thought that the Kraken was kind of where where the mechanical owl was the R two D two. I feel like yeah. the Kraken was there like Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose so. You know, because those were kind of those films were kind of popular in the seventies, and I just, I just, he kind of has a Godzilla look, with a four-armed Godzilla look. Yes, with, with a little bit of the uh, creature from the Black Lagoon tossed in there. Yes, the definitely is the big boss. The Kraken is kind of, I mean, really, the main antagonist of of this film is Thetis, the the, the Maggie Smith character, I think. Right. Uh, but mom. we've. But we have we have knocked off all of our other sort of earthbend villains. We've knocked off Calabos. We've knocked off Medusa. Uh, we've gone through the series of set pieces where all the monsters are destroyed. What's left? We got to have a big beast, which is which is kind of an action movie trope. Like if you look at all of the Avengers movies and all the Marvel movies, we often end with just like a big the sky big, battle. Yeah, big sky battle. So this is the big sky battle of. It's uh, literally big sky battle. Yeah. 
And and since uh, Dan did some research, I did a little bit of research as well um, on Wikipedia. Very proud of this. So <laughs> the um, the Gorgons, Medusa, according to Joseph Campbell, is the representation of the evils of the destroyed civilizations of ancient Europe that the ancient Greeks battled and defeated. Like they're the lingering remnants of the horrors of what Greek what the Greek armies have done. And also proof that they deserved it, because these ancient civilizations, represented by these gorgons that cannot die, that turn men into stone, um, there's sort of a psychological reverberation with the with the gorgons, and that's what that's what they that's what they represented to the ancient Greeks. Interesting. I guess, so I guess I guess they're I guess that's Troy or Crete or or Car- or whichever ancient uh, civilization you want to pick that the Greeks turned into mud and ash. Mm. So did you, how old were you when you first saw these movies, first saw Clash of the Titans? I must have been six. Yeah, yeah. I saw it, I saw it in the theater. So did I. Oh, I did not. I think it, I, I definitely didn't see it in theater. And then many, many times on like cable and HBO. Yeah, that's where I yeah. saw it. I think I was probably a little older because at that point movies didn't get on HBO for like a year or two sure. after they come saw out. I it in the theaters. I remember it very, very well. I remember the opening scene where Zeus breaks the man's bones with his bare hands. I remember that. I remember uh, Maggie Smith <laughs> saying, um, Justice our revenge. I remember that line. And so, yeah, that was the only time I ever saw the film that one time. So until now. And so I'd seen it enough times that it was like really, I, I mean, it had been since I was a child that I'd seen it, but like as a kid, like maybe five or six times, I'm totally guessing at that, but it was pretty imprinted. So when I was re-watching it, I was just like, oh yeah, this scene. Cool. I but, saw it when I was a kid on cable, but then I was in a long-term relationship and the person I was in a relationship with loved this movie. And so I probably saw it like 20 times over that, over the period of that relationship. And then subconsciously or not, I had not seen it since that relationship ended. I like didn't watch it for like, I don't even know, 10 years or something. So if, if I can ask a personal question, Emmy. Yes. Uh, during the course of that relationship, what was your opinion of Clash of the Titans? Was it something that you enjoyed or watched grudgingly because your partner was really into this? I, I enjoyed it, but at the same time, because it was on so often, I often didn't watch the whole thing. Like I would just walk in and out of the room. And so I, it had been a long time since I'd seen it from beginning to end because I would just sort of like sit, watch a scene here and there and then walk out and go do something. So I didn't, it, it was fine. Like I didn't hate it. It was okay. I think I just kind of, like that song that you like when it comes out and then you hear it 5,000 times and you're like, okay, I'm done. It's not a bad song. I've just heard it too many times. So that's where I sort of was with that. So I enjoyed actually watching it this time, and I picked up some things that I think I hadn't, either I hadn't noticed or I'd just forgotten. Yeah, like what? Oh, well, like, 
the 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 boobs and the butt scenes. The nudity. I was six years old in the movie theater with my parents, and I saw boobs and butts on screen, and those might have been some of my first boobs and butts in real life. This was pre-PG-13. Yeah. So you could could have a PG-rated movie, which this was, and have some, uh, you know, tasteful nudity. And also, you could drop F-bombs. Obviously, you didn't have (laughs) F-bombs in ancient Greece, but... I mean, you could have. Yeah, did, no, I had forgotten that some of that. Bombs in I know they didn't. Their tongues were pure. They were far <laughs> too poetic to be effing all over the place. Hey, can we swear on your podcast? Yes, you can. Okay, great. Speaking of fucking poetic, pure, pure tongues, I would like to talk a little bit about the gods, specifically, like Zeus and Hera and Aphrodite and, um, whoever, and Achilles' mom and Athena. Because I'm watching the beginning of the film, I haven't seen this in many decades, and when, in the opening section, when we see Perseus grow up and ride horses and learn to be a man without a shirt on, <laughs> we're also treated to many scenes uh, in a montage of the gods just ambling around that one room in Mount Olympus being gods. Right. Like, there was no action, it was just someone at one point said, to arguably the greatest actor of all time, Sir Lawrence Olivier, can you just improvise being Zeus? <laughs> and that got into the film. And this, this is the thought that I had when I was watching it this time, was budget Krypton. Oh, yes. And when did Superman come out? Uh, 1978. So oh, so this is a lot later. of Superman vibes in this as well. Very oh, yeah. much so. Absolutely. If you can't get Brando, you get Lawrence Olivier. It works either way. <laughs> exactly. The whole deal that they made with all of these actors playing the gods of uh, uh, Olivier, Maggie Smith, was that they only had to shoot for a week. Right. And well, Maggie Smith was married to the screenwriter, Beverly oh. Cross. So, right. yeah. She had to, or else, or, 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 or else he wasn't going to let it go. And it wouldn't be enough that she, you know, took the trash out that one time. Right. She had to be in his movie. Right. Yeah, it was it was her Vanessa Redgrave. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. That because I was wondering when I was watching it. I was one of the things I was thinking about was how did they get Maggie Smith and Olivia? Like how did they get these Ursula Andress? Ursula yes, Andress. Right. Yeah. I mean, and of course she's Aphrodite. Speaking yeah. of Aphrodite, my yeah. favorite my favorite exchange in the movie is when uh, is when Zeus is uh, trying to get Aphrodite to, uh, to give up Bubo to go send to, to no, aid. No, Athena. Athena. Oh, is that Athena? I'm sorry. That's Athena. That's Pallas. Wrong, wrong. Okay. Minerva. And he just has this little, she's like, no, no, I won't do it. And he says, oh, but it is my wish. I and command it. It's a very <laughs> Dr. Evil line reading. He just sort of, sort of slinks away. And this is, this is one thing that I did think that they got right about the gods, even though the scenes are very silly, is that in Greek mythology, the gods are petty. Yeah. The gods are jealous. The gods are very human. Yes. And Zeus is the most human one of the all. Like he just sticks his dick wherever it may go, everywhere, and, and pisses off other gods. That's really what he does a lot. One other thing about Aphrodite, I just want to mention, is apparently, and I and I was this old when I learned about this, 
um, Harry Hamlin and Ursula Andress had an affair during the shooting and after the shooting of Clash of the Titans, and Ursula Andress had his secret love child. Yes, yes. And he was like 26 and she was 44 and didn't tell anyone for years that her kid was Harry Hamlin's kid. You know, Mr. L.A. Law's kid was hanging out in, in Los Angeles wondering where he got those beautiful lips from. Yep, yep, yep. No, I thought that was that was interesting. I have to say, one of my favorite lines from Clash is when Maggie Smith is talking to, I believe, Athena. I think it's a no. It's not Athena. I can't remember Did who it you is. Have now. An owl? Then you know. No, it's not. A, it, it was the woman. It was the woman who. Oh gosh, uh, Hera maybe. When he when they're talking about how the ways that Zeus had tried to sleep with them, like the things that he tried to do to get with them. And she was like, he once turned into a cuttlefish. Oh, I forgot that. And then she's like, I turned myself into uh, a shark or an eel. Yeah, I turned myself into a shark and ate him. And I was like, what? (laughs) What? Because as we all know, the sexiest of fishes is the cuttlefish. I mean, come on. He's got a cuttlefish. Oh, he just it's wants right to there. cuddle, baby. All he wants to do is cuddle. <laughs> but just yes. Like, I don't even want to do anything. I just want to cuddle. I just want to cuddle. <laughs> uh, let's, 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 just, let's just fall asleep and let's, you know, whatever, see what happens. Right, yeah, right. This has got a few moves. So, so going, just to move it ahead a little bit, going backwards i believe in time we uh to to xanadu uh now daniel you chose xanadu you said you love xanadu what do you love about xanadu i love everything about xanadu but i'll give you specifics um i love the music i think the score is just awesome i have elo really is yes yeah elo ojn or onj i'm getting my letters mixed up um i have i've had the the soundtrack on vinyl for years i love listening to it um i think that it has this kitschy campy beautiful magical quality to it i think it's uh gene kelly's final film performance and he is just sparkling in this film he's so fun to watch can i just say that of the old Hollywood actors, and especially the old Hollywood dancers, Gene Kelly has always been my favorite. Oh, yes. Always. Always. And I have a soft spot in my heart for this movie because it was introduced to me by uh, a friend of mine who, uh, who I knew in L.A. Uh, many years ago, and it just sort of became our movie. We were, we were friends. We actually dated for a while. His name was Tom, and he died uh, very, very tragically. Um, about six, seven years ago, and so I'd, I just associate this movie with him, and I have, I have just sort of a deep affection for it. Uh, I kind of love every single moment of it, and it was a pleasure introducing it to Michael, who had never seen it before. You'd never and seen it? Never seen it. So Dan, first, I just want to say I'm so sorry about your friend. Oh, thank um, you. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Don't- um, no, I had never seen Xanadu before. This is one of the one of the holes in my knowledge of cinema history. And the first time I'd ever seen anything anything from Xanadu was when Dan showed me that opening scene from Xanadu during one of the Whiskey Flicks episodes that we did. 
and I absolutely didn't get it. And it, this was one of the final clips that Dan showed me. So it was supposed to be this summative big moment. And clearly, this is such an important film to Dan. Didn't know that at the time. And I'm like, okay, um, they're dancing. It's bright. It's the beach. I, um, it looks fine. I don't know. And I, and I guess that must have hurt you a little bit, Dan, that I dismissed I it. Deeply offended. Yeah. Deeply <laughs> offended. I still haven't gotten over it. Oh, heartbreak. So I watched it for the first time on Thursday. Um, and I watched it in tandem with Dan. We both pressed play at the same time. Yeah, we synced up from our, our respective... <laughs> nice. And, and just I, held and held on this, uh, this like, long text conversation throughout the whole movie. It was really, it was, really fun. It was so like, cute. I gotta go pee. Pause the movie. Okay, okay, I'll pause. <laughs> and, and I have to say that I was absolutely delighted with this film. Um, I just thought it was the bee's knees. I thought it was so charming. Um, I'm uh, my day job, which is my most job right now. I'm a private tutor, and I started telling the adolescents and teenage girls that I work with, "You should see this movie. You would like it. It is so adorable." And everything about it, I just loved. I loved the opening dance number, where all the muses just pop out of the pop out of the wall, reverse. Roadrunner style. I yes. loved Michael Beck in this film. Uh, I felt that he played this uh, artist searching for his destiny so well. It is such an impossible role to play. What are you looking for? What's your goal? Um, inspiration and love, maybe, I don't know. Such a hard thing to pl play. Love Gene Kelly dancing on roller skates. Loved the music. Loved that 1940s 1980s rock and roll big band yep, yep. match up with the tubes. Showstopper, showstopping oh. number. And can I just talk about the tubes for a little bit? I love the tubes. White punks are dope. Um, she's a she's a beauty. Um, and I love it when rock and roll bands have a real sense of theatricality about them. It's something yes. you don't get that much anymore. And yeah, the keyboard player with the long hair and those weird glasses, but the fact that the rock band can do a little choreography. I mean, you don't usually expect that from a bass player, but they, they handled it pretty well. And it just was so delightful. And the the last number, the endless disco <laughs> yes. skating. Another costume change. Another why is she in a cowboy outfit right now? I don't know. It just works. Why Why do we have sneering new wave punks off in the corner? I don't know. It just works. We've got the normies over We've here. We've got mimes. We've mimes. We've got mimes. We've got actual mimes juggling pins. It feels like, like, yeah, so up with people. So L.A., like you say, Dan. So, and it was... At a certain point, I had to just not just leave my brain at the door, but take my heart out of my chest and wrap it in a warm blanket and <laughs> cuddle my heart as I was watching this because the entire time I was just going, oh, they're roller skating. And all of a sudden they're on a rooftop. No, wait, it's raining. No, wait, it's the, doesn't matter. I'm stopped paying attention to reason and logic. Now they're fishes. Now they're now birds. They're fishes. There's now they're animated. By Don Bluth. That was Don Bluth? Yeah! Wow, Don, Don Bluth Studios uh, produced the animation sequence. And the uh, metaphoric sex. <laughs> also, like, what I, what I love about it is 
that you know i mean it's it's, it's a very old-fashioned story it's you know struggling young artist who meets you know sort of old washed up has been and they they team up you know with the help of of kira who is the the olivia newton john character she's the muse who has come to make their dreams come true or to reignite their dreams I mean, it's mm-hmm. such a simple story there is practically zero conflict and there's right. very little plot in the film very little let's, plot let's start a club okay that's the plot right there. and then and then they succeed and then they win and it's and normally that would bug me because i expect a certain amount of tension friction i mean there is a little bit you know with with kira she's struggling because she wants to because she's fallen in love with uh, sunny and she's she wasn't supposed to this wasn't supposed to happen um and so, so you know we have her we have her her 11 o'clock number in the side the weird painting limbo um where she, you know, sings about how hard it is to be amused, and gosh, I wish Dad would just let me go have fun. But overall, like, there, there's no antagonist in this film. Yes, other yes, than there other, is. Well, other than, like, the derpy boss. The derpy boss, but the derpy boss is the enemy to what the muse represents. If the muse is inspiration and artistic purity, he's the guy saying, I don't need art, I need commerce, I need you to copy which is the antithesis of inspiration agreed i would say that he plays a very important role in this film he is everything that the muse stands against and so um the one fault i had with the film is i wanted uh in the in towards the end of the movie where michael beck is sad and because uh kira has left him i wanted a moment where he um works for the boss and maybe a montage of him being in the office right. wearing a suit sad kind of like Kermit did in um the Muppets take Manhattan where because right. that, that's the worst thing that can happen to an artist is that they not just take the day job but that the day job becomes their life yeah if if we're following the hero's journey template then we need that that lowest point yeah and we never really get that this entire movie is just one big gift from the goddess. Section. Yes. One of my, I have to say, the thing that I really enjoy about Xanadu is all of the references that it has. Now, I have not, I had not seen it since I was a kid. And, and I was shocked, actually, by how much I did remember. Uh, but I certainly didn't remember everything. And... I know when I was a kid, I did not pick up all of these movie references. I mean, they reference Singing in the Rain. Yes. They reference Cover Girl, which is a, a movie from 1946 with Gene Kelly and Rita Hayworth. Uh, where, I haven't seen that one. Where he, well, his, mo- his name in Cover Girl is Danny McGuire. Such a Gene Kelly name. I was thinking the entire time, this is the perfect name for a character played by Gene Right. Well, that was his name in Cover Girl. And the movie um, uh, It's Always Fair Weather, with, which is also, uh, I think it's, it's Always Fair Weather. And he does a extended, like, skating scene, skating tap dance scene. But he also does that in Singing in the Rain. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. so they, they really referenced a lot of Gene Kelly movies. And there's another Rita Hayworth movie called Down to Earth, which is actually what Xanadu is a remake of. Rita Hayworth is 
it's not Kira, but she's, it's, what's her yeah, Greek Kira, name? She, she, yeah, I forget the name of her actual it's like, name. Tripsacore. Uh, Tripsacore, yes, Tripsacore. She's the muse of choral singing. Right, and, and, and in Down to Earth, Rita Hayworth is that character, and she comes down and essentially saves like a play and, a, and like this big band thing. So, so they really referenced a lot of those old Hollywood movies, which I enjoyed. You're giving me a list of movies to watch, <laughs> and, and to add on to that, um, it also, I think, references my favorite Gene Kelly role, which is an American in Paris, where he plays a character named Jerry Mulligan, also such a perfect Gene Kelly name. And American in Paris famously ends in this extended 20, 25-minute long dance number. Yes. They just the Dream Ballet. The Dream Ballet. And that's what the ending of Xanadu basically is. Yes. It's an endless dream ballet with so many costume changes, just like in American in Paris. All of a sudden, he's in a Toulouse Lautrec painting. It, it, it's the same exact thing, except they didn't have a cowboy outfit, and they didn't have roller skates, and the tubes weren't born yet. And am I the only one who thinks Pat Benatar took from Xanadu? Oh my gosh. Pat Benatar's outfit in Love is a Battlefield video oh. is totally Kira's outfit in Xanadu. Which, which outfit? She has so many. Well, in the be- more in the beginning, I think it's the scene where he runs into her in the nightclub before it opens, like when it's he's like looking over the place and, she, and she's roller skating and she has like the, 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 the leg warmers and that like multi-layered skirt that's like poofy. It looked to me exactly like Pat Benatar in Love is a Battlefield. Look at this video up right now. To the internet as we speak. <laughs> I know you can't see it out of the podcast. Oh, here she comes. Emily, yeah, look at it. it, it it's a little bit more, I, I would say that this outfit is a little bit more trashy. Yes, I mean, they. she had to Pat Benatar it up, but it just seemed... <laughs> It seemed reminiscent to me. I don't know when I when I was watching Xanadu, I it made me think of that. Uh, I love it. Who is oh Zeus in? Isn't Zeus in Xanadu? Yes, Zeus is yeah the disembodied voice when they're in the limbo when they're trying to get her back. And that is Wilfred Hyde White who plays Colonel Pickering in My Fair Lady. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. Didn't know that at all. Well, I, and, I've seen uh, My Fair... I probably watch My Fair Lady at least once a year. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. And so uh, as soon as I heard his voice, I was like, it's Colonel Pickering! <laughs> well, maybe just this one time. <laughs> or forever. I can tell. A minute. An age. Who knows? Time. <laughs> and it must be said, well, we're, if, we're saying his, if we're saying Wilfred Hyde White's name that it was Coral Brown playing his wife, and that was not Hera, that uh, was uh, Masemini, I think is how you pronounce her name, um, who is the mother of the, of the muses. Got it. Yeah. And, um, and did you recognize, so it's funny, I, well, I watch movies all the time, I watch a lot of movies, and, and one of my faves is The Sting, which I just watched this last, like, probably in the last few months. And the guy who is the boss, the drippy boss, he's in The Sting. And 
one of his like artist friends who works there, the woman with the dark hair, her name is Sumitro Arliss. She's in the sting. She's Solano in the sting, the one who tries to off Robert Redford after sleeping wow. with him. Okay, yeah, there she is in the sting because I'm looking at the internet right now. I'm still watching Pat Benatar. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what y'all are doing. I'm watching Pat Benatar. <laughs> oh, God, I love Sad, Pat, sad Dancing with a Man sad in a Bar. Sad Dancing with a... Uh, the Diamond Dance Girl. That's the best we could do to church in 1983 MTV to say that she was a sex worker. Right, right. But again, it's only two years. I think it's only two years, th- two or three years after Xanadu. And did they not throw every possible 80s cliche look into that movie? From the roller oh. skates to the leg warmers to the neon and the 40s as well with the zoot suits and i, I want to say that the the uh, dancers who were in the zoot suits especially in that 1940s 1980s number they were all actors or dancers of color yes and i and i really appreciated that because the zoot suit was what people of color i believe it was a uh, people of mexican descent in los angeles wore in the 1940s and the zoot suit riot uh, famously um, sung by some 90s uh, swing band. Right. Pop and Daddies. Cherry Pop and Daddies. Zoot Suits riots were when um, soldiers would basically attack Mexican men in zoot suits for having the gall to live their lives brilliantly in wonderful costumes. Right. So I really appreciated the fact that it wasn't... Um, white performers in those suits. It was dancers of color. I really like that. Uh, yes, I have a little, a little historical accuracy there. Yeah. With the roller skates. Exactly. Know. Well, yeah, I mean, hey. And what I loved about that and, and some of the other numbers in it was how live they seemed. Oh, like, oh. it was extended shots. We got to really see the choreography. This is me being like, oh, they have too many quick cuts now. Uh, you can't tell what anybody's doing. Moments uh, there. Oh, cut, 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 uh, cut, says the guy <laughs> in the beginning. Said Fred Willard <laughs> in the beginning of the player. <laughs> but in this in this movie, it's really true. Like, there's a lot of care in, in the choreography. And it, it's just really fun to watch it just sort of unfold uh, uninterrupted. I agree. Yeah. I keep on going back to the 40s, 80s number. We spent a good couple of minutes with the big band, and they're just wonderful. And then we spent equal time, give equal weight to the tubes, and they hold the stage. Yeah. And it's saying that both of these art forms are equally valid, equally wonderful, and all of the meats of our cultural stew belong together. Everyone gets to know each other in the pot. Which is also what they're saying by casting Gene Kelly with Olivia Newton-John. I mean, you definitely have old Hollywood and, at the time, new Hollywood. Can I talk some more about Gene Kelly? Please. Gene Kelly's performance in this movie. Please. I I love Gene Kelly. The level of just charm that he exudes in this film makes it makes the fact that he has no idea how to even mind playing a clarinet forgivable and i play the clarinet so that 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 was a sticking point for me but just his smile and his pure just joy of being there and the fact that he doesn't dance for the first 20 minutes of the movie to make me afraid that can gene kelly still do it 
And the answer is yes, he can. And just when you thought that, yes, he can still do it, then he puts on the roller skates. And it's just one of the happiest things I've experienced recently is seeing Gene Kelly perform this role. It's just joyous. He just brings joy to everything he does. I mean, there's no other way, I think, to explain it. It's not, it's just, it's just, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, it really is just feel good entertainment. And, and I think, go ahead, Dan. I was just gonna say that I think the the tone of the movie and all of the conventions of the movie, like the, uh, what do you call them, like the window blind uh, wipes, and the Venetian wipes, the Venetian wipes, and the 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 neon outlines around all of the characters, especially the muses, whenever they zip somewhere, like all and the the animation sequence, like this this movie, the Dan, the shopping say montage. It? I haven't even gotten into the Dan, shopping montage. Just say it. Life. The cheesy parts. The cheesy parts. The cheesy parts. Cheesy in the in the glory in the most glorious way. Yeah. It's just this. It's this fromage sampler. <laughs> uh, of every single trick they can do to make us smile. And this movie got ripped to shreds by the critics when, oh, it, yeah. when it first came out. It did not do well at the box office. Do they hate joy? However, the soundtrack was a huge hit. It was one of those movies where the soundtrack just took on a life of its own and was one of the biggest records of the year. Uh, so... As as far as like a cult following, I think this movie falls very well into the into the cult movie category in that you know it, it just really like the movie itself did not make make much of a splash. However, the, its its fandom and its following, and, and it, it eventually you know as as we know got produced as uh, and adapted as a Broadway musical back in uh, back in the aughts. Yes, uh, which back I saw when had, back when we still had theater. Now, I have a question. It was marvelous. I have a question because I read something that I kind of disagreed with when I was doing my research on the movie. Uh, Someone made a comment about that they didn't like when he finally goes through the wall to get Kira back. They Uh referred to that like like that he had gone to heaven to talk to wherever. I didn't think that they were in heaven. I didn't, that did not read as heaven to me. Very Superman, very going to the the Forbidden Zone or wherever they put um, the villains of Superman to. It's also very big Superman. The Phantom Zone. The Phantom Zone, the Forbidden Zone, is another cult movie. Yes. Yes. Yeah, oh God, with uh, music by Danny Elfman. But but it wasn't... I didn't think that, that that he had gone to heaven. I thought it was just more of like a different dimension. It was also very Tron-like. It was. You're right about that. Oh my God, you're right. Well, I don't. Yeah, think it didn't read as heaven to me. It just read as, as like I said before, it read as as limbo. Like right. It was this in between place uh, where the mortals and the and the gods or the muses could have their moment. So. Going off of the in-between plays, I'm going to move into the Warriors. Nice. Uh, and, and, and here we go back to New York. We go back to New York, and I well, just have to, to say, before anything, my favorite part of the Warriors is Lynn Thigpen. I, say more about that. I love Lynn Thigpen as the DJ. I just love her. Oh, yeah. oh yes. As the as the sort of as sort of the she's sort of the role of the chorus, yeah. 
of the yes. Greek chorus in a sense. And she is always, this was another movie I had not seen in years and I have the DVD, but I just hadn't watched it. And so I really enjoyed watching it, but I love Lynn Thigpen. Right now at the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn, Let's go. <laughs> so what is what is what is uh, Michael? This was your pick. Why do you love the Warriors? Oh God! Again, what is there not to love about the Warriors? I am such a sucker for old, gritty New York films. Having grown up in New York City, yep. Um, really, just despising how clean it's gotten. When COVID first started happening, and not not March, but like. May, June, it started to get gritty. I'm sort of like, oh, wait, this might be good for New York culture a little bit. Shame about all the disease and death. Uh, But I love a movie where you really see the grit and grime and struggle of old New York because I was a small child when when this came out. As was I. I. It didn't see it until I was much older. So... The world depicted in this film is a New York that I don't even actually remember. It's a New York that I just have sense memory of. Yeah, no, I know what you mean because I, I, I'm we're about we're the same age, and yeah, and so, yeah, and so I, I don't have like a strong memory of New York in 1979, and yet when I see the movie. It's like, oh yeah, I, I, I feel like I remember it, you oh, know. Yeah. It's like I, I saw those subways that looked like that, the yeah, 80s. I but you know, I thought the Furies um, in in Riverside Park that one time yes. when, I was, when I was four years old. That was me. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I and I, I love a movie that has the subway in it, especially the old gritty subway. I've always just been so enamored of the 24-hour subway that New York City has, how it's uh, such a democratic, egalitarian institution that'll take you anywhere you want to go, but make sure that you're tough enough to be there, especially in the middle of the night. Um, this This was done, this movie was done before the Guardian Angels showed up and tried to make, bring some law and order into the subway. So this was really the old rowdy west of New York. I love that. I love just the aesthetic of this movie. I love that ultimately this movie is Marxist. It is anti-establishment in a really interesting way, saying that the cops are not just the enemy of the gangs because they're law and order, that the cops are the enemy of the gang because they're keeping the gangs from achieving the natural power that they deserve and that if the people the youth come together they can take over the city and the theory is it's a little bit more explicit in the book that it will be better when the gangs seize power that it'll be better for this better for them but also better for the city but i just really enjoy that as well yes and i but i think it's interesting that they have that scene on the subway of the two sort of more upper-class, middle-class couples that come on that seem like they've come from a prom or something, probably Studio 54, uh, because they are the same age as the Warriors, but clearly living a different life. 
that's my favorite scene in this movie. When I was rewatching, I, I just rewatched this today, uh, and that scene, which I had, I had noticed before, but it didn't really land for me. Last time we saw this was actually when we covered it for our podcast uh, back in two thousand eight. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, and so, just kind of watching it fresh. What what struck me about this, Mike, all all of what you just said about uh, it having the sort of Marxist bent about. Um, you know, the gangs taking over and Cyrus's vision for the future of uh, of their collaboration. You know, basically, he wants to he wants to he wants to, to build an anarchist collective. Well, is it an anarchist collective? Because it's it's the anarchist that leads to his downfall. It's it's the anarchist that that decides to shoot him. Le- see, um, no, no. See, I think that's a problem when we say that um, uh, that it's anarchy that does that. That 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 it's. Um, David Patrick Kelly's Luther is an anarchist. Just because you want chaos doesn't mean you want anarchy. Anarchy, in its truest, purest form, is about the fact that men don't need to be, mankind, humankind, needs not to be governed. That it's the imposition of rules and order on mankind that creates inequality, and it is the agent of chaos which is what Luther is, yes. that upsets it because he has no power, so all he wants to do is take out the people he perceives as having more power than him. Anytime we have a power structure, anytime we have a system with inherent power structure, that's what that, that's the end result. And Luther, Luther not, not Luther, Cyrus's power is um, it's a moral authority. He's no leader of all the gangs. He's just the one with the vision. And so they choose to follow him. Um, they choose to out, come down, go up to, uh, I think it was supposed to be Van Cortland Park, but it looked like Riverside Park, um, to, to hear what he says, this new vision for a collective future where the, all the gangs share power and share authority. And there is no top-down institutional power. And, and so... This is this is the idea that the film is introducing, you know, at the outset. In like the first first ten minutes of the film, the first first scene of the film is uh, Cyrus calls all the gangs in, to, or, or at least all of the all of the gangs of note. Mm-hmm. We we learn that there are gangs who are not invited. Only uh, nine representatives per gang. And so he presents this vision, and everyone's like, "Yeah, yeah, this sounds good. This sounds good." Cops show up. Luther decides, seizes the opportunity to uh, to shoot Cyrus to assassinate him, um, and then he blames it on the warriors. And so then then the movie unfolds. The rest of the film, almost to the end, is a chase scene. Yeah, we don't really return to the ideas of the movie we until do a little bit. close to the end. We do somewhat in the encounter with the orphans, so we see sort of a class structure within within the different gangs, and we also see it in the um, we see sort of gender politics, like when they, when they encounter the Lily, the the the, the Lizzies, um, and we see that women, like both women and the the sort of lower crust of of the different gang populations, were not a part of this. But also, uh, also, I actually. I forget the name of this gang, but throughout the film, we're seeing the the black gang sort of prepare. Um, in the Gramercy Rips? The Gramercy Rips, thank you. Of and whom Cyrus was the leader. Yes, of whom Cyrus was the leader, but the Gramercy Rips um, clearly aesthetically modeled on the Black Panthers. 
Um, they've got the same sort of look about them. And the black, and so all those 60s um, African-American revolutionaries were Maoist, taking their, their, their directives, their, their march, not marching orders, but their inspiration, not from Stalinism, not from Trotsky, I, but Mao, and Mao was the, the one Marxist who really tried to destroy any sort of elitism that the Soviets still held on to. Um, Stalin and Khrushchev loved their opera and their classical music. And, you know, say what you will about uh, Chairman Mao, and you can say a lot, there, that, that was the theory there, that this sort of hierarchy is bad for any sort of revolution or any sort of equality. Well, and just, I have a question. Is the name Gramercy Riffs, because I was taking notes while I was watching, watching all these movies, um, did they take, was that West Side Story inspired with Riff? Because Riff is, the, is, is like Tony's sidekick in West Side Story. Playing yeah, by, that's right. Um, Russ Tamblin. Yeah. Russ Tamblin, yes. What I was most taken with that name was, was Gramercy. Is that Gramercy? Like, are these, is this the gang of Gramercy Park? Yes. Like, is that, is that, is it, to be like, I can't think of a more benign Manhattan neighborhood. Right. Or elitist Manhattan neighborhood. Yeah. Maybe, they, maybe they got together in a gang because no one would give them a key to that park. Like, this is how we get our key. Exactly. <laughs> we formed the Rifts. <laughs> I'm looking right now on the warriors.fandom.com and it says the Rips are the largest and most powerful gang in all New York City from Gramercy Park. Ah! Yeah. That's so adorable. And okay. Yeah. And are the Lizzies are the Lizzies is that from like was that a play on Lizzies? Or know, or was it, it yeah. Tin Lizzie? Yeah, well, and, and is their job they just too. go out and yeah, they sort of ensorcel other gang members and, like, spirit them up to their... Well, they were sort of the sirens. the apartment and... Uh, they were the Greek them. sirens, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And, <clears throat> yeah, no, they definitely were the lesbian gang. Oh, definitely. But it's really not till the end of the movie that once they're on the subway and they finally have a chance to breathe, because they, they've just been either, you know... In, in peril pursuit for a good, you know, hour plus of the film since since the opening. All night long. And they, they're, they're finally, they finally, who's left of them made it onto the train at Union Station back to Coney Island and they have a moment to breathe. And this is where the encounter with the, uh, with the hoity-toity uh, prom kids. Yes. Or not, not even encounter, just like moment. moment right. Of, because, of, because of the comparison. Prom, the prom kids don't, understand their experience they're not even aware of their experience because they don't have to fight to survive well i just assumed they were part of the bridge and tunnel crowd oh yeah that's it uh but no i i agree with you and it's it's really a it's an it's a very interesting scene i do i love all of the gangs like i just thought i would have loved to have been in in on the production meeting where they were coming up with these names and coming up with who they were going to be because like that Marcel Marceau group. The mimes. The mimes. The mimes. 
the the baseball furies are actually my favorite because oh my goodness not only you know are they in i don't know if that's yankees or mets or whatever uh and stripes or uniforms they're in uh but also the makeup this spooky kind of clown makeup yes and you know they bring along their own fog machines to run through whenever they're out you know (laughs) some other gangs but then they go down so easily like for for being as scary as they are in the fight in the park like they get they get they get smacked down pretty quick by the warriors i think honestly the hardest gang well the lezzies definitely uh give them a run for the money Uh, but it was the uh, i'm blanking on the name of the gang but the gang that looked like canadian hosers all just in overalls the punks the punks well sweet that yeah that gang is that's the gang they fought in the bathroom right if they're yeah that's the bathroom gang um which was a scene wonderfully parodied in the community episode uh uh the paintball episode um but is there any more unpunk aesthetic than just overalls and roller skates well i took punks (laughs) as like jerks not like punk as in punk music but more like they're punks like they're just idiots uh but this why time around, themselves that? Why would they, why I think would they it's it's like reclaiming. So it's hard. like a claiming. It's, it's yeah, oh, and they're, I they're ironic punk. Exactly, and I overalls. think, and I really think that Richard, I think it's Richard Linkletter, dazed and yeah. confused. Some of those guys, I can't remember his name now. One of those guys looks like one of the punks. Absolutely, yes, yes. you're right. Yes. Sasha. Um, I think his first name is Sasha. No, he, plays, the one he, plays Pink's, he plays Pink's best friend, right? Yeah. Right. He's the yeah. one who drinks a little bit too much beer in that one scene. And he and wears overalls right. and yes. that shirt. He looks like oh, no, one of the punks. The the, uh, he's got the final speech as we have a wonderful zoom in around Pink as he's thinking about what his future is going to be. It's that guy. It's overalls guy who says, right. did I live my best life while I was stuck in this place? Did I fuck as much poon-poon as I could when I was right. stuck in this place. Apologies. I didn't write that line. Um, yeah, I don't, that, that line wasn't even in the movie. So I did just write that line. <laughs> well, I was stuck in this place. Yeah. And uh, so I just love this film so much. Mercedes Rule is in this film. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, she's the, um, the, the, the police officer in Riverside Park. Is that Mercedes Rule? That is yes. Mercedes Rule. Oh. And she's a sort of siren as well. I love her. A little bit, yeah. She ties the men to the rocks. Um, And, of course, David Patrick Kelly. You know, I saw him on the street maybe like 20 years ago or something in New York, kind of in the Lincoln Center area. And I, I say, to begin with, I rarely notice famous people in New York because I just don't look at people. Like I, you know, I see people enough to avoid them, but I rarely like look at them. So I saw him and I was legit starstruck. Because mm. I I, he looked exactly the same. And I was like, oh my God, warriors. And apparently he's the nicest guy. I, well, I'm sure he is. I didn't speak to him. I didn't speak to him. I just walked past him, but I did have a moment. What I appreciate so much about his performance in this movie is he is just not afraid to go to eleven at all times. There is he, he he there is there there is very much a camp quality 
to this movie, certainly with all of the costumes, the way that the, the very heightened nature of all of the gangs and I'm sorry, how they identify. Mime, if you put mimes in your film, you're camp. You're, you're camp. We're, we're not looking back anymore. And he knows exactly what kind of movie he's in, and he is taking it as far as he can go. His his final scene, I don't know. I just like to like do doing stuff. stuff. Like, yeah, doing stuff like shooting a guy uh, who's trying to pull the city's gangs together. I don't know. And ah! then when he gets stabbed in the arm and is screaming, ah! and, in the, and in the beginning, not when he shoots Cyrus, but when he blames the warriors yes it's it's so well done because he's unable to mask his glee at casting this completely false accusation and yet it's done with such intensity and such certainty that it is almost believable it's not like a lie look to the side villain moment it is maybe maybe he could be right right just a wonderful little moment there. And it was wow. actually his his idea to use the bottles. They were going to use, like, pigeons or something. I don't know what they were going to do. Oh, pigeons. Pigeons, like three pigeons. I don't know what, the, what he was supposed to do with pigeons. but Wapping three pigeons together, holding them by the tail. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But but he... to play. Right. But he had the idea of the bottles, and I believe he improvised that line too. It's so brilliant, so brilliant, and, and, it's, and it's the most iconic line in the film. It totally. That, along with, can you can dig, you dig it? it? Yeah, <laughs> yes. And, and his is the only character who has a life off screen. That phone call that he takes in the middle of the movie, where he's speaking to someone a parental figure or a family figure or someone we never quite learn who, there is responsibilities that he is avoiding. Right. Or at least that, that and, and that's, it's alluded to that this is why he is so crazy. This is why he is so um, bereft and is so alienated is because whatever is waiting for him back home is so awful. And that was very very much made explicit in the text in the book the warriors by a marxist social worker saul urich um that i appreciated that part being in this film well one thing i have to say the only thing i took issue with uh because i'm a native new yorker was the well to begin with they get out at 96th street but it's actually 72nd street yes Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. It's definitely 72nd Street. And I was trying to figure out where, uh, like, what trains they were taking because they didn't really show any lines. The only line they showed was the five. And I'm like, they can't be on the five and get out at 96th or 72nd because the five is an east side line. So they had to take the one to get there. And it's it. that, yeah. And, and so Union Square to get the F train, right? Because that's how you get to Coney Island. But the one doesn't go to Union Square. The okay. five does. No, it doesn't. Oh, the one doesn't go. To, no, uh, but not. And the F's not at Union Square. This is uh, 14th and Sixth Avenue. Well, they would have to go to 14th Street and then make that long two-mile walk to Union Square. Yeah. So that's I, just just my picky New Yorker yeah, in that. me. Was I, like, I love seeing those kind of inaccuracies, though. Yes. I really do. As a native like, New Yorker, 
the movie that is one of the most accurate subway films that I've seen is Die Hard 3. <laughs> Die Hard with a Vengeance, where they've got to race all over the city to stop these bombs, um, Bruce Willis and Sam Jackson. And literally, they're arguing about which is the quickest way to get to 72nd Street from 96th Street. Okay, you take a cab, I will take the subway. And the map at least the first half of the film, and then you know, the second half they leave New York, um, they go out to Long Island or something, but the first half of the film works. It's accurate, it's a map, it is a subway map. Whoever wrote that film did his homework, had a map in his office. Or, or definitely, and was might have even been from New York or spent some time there. Because I one always think, to, yeah. I just wanted to say one more thing to tie this to well, really, Xanadu and Clash of the Titans is how significant the sea is to, yes. to all of these films. Yes. Like, in, in Xanadu, this is where uh, Danny and, and Sonny meet is on, on the beach in Santa Monica. Obviously, the climax Sunny. of Clash of the Titans uh, is... Uh, it, uh, but with know, the waves, krakens, it's all significant. And then in, in The Warriors, this is where they're trying to get to. This is where they're spending 90 minutes uh, trying to trying to find is the sea, the sea. And this is, uh, as, I, as I think I said before, this is based on the Persian ex- expedition, which is a, uh, you know, questionably historical account by, by the ancient Greek historian Xenophon about a group of mercenary uh, warriors from Greece who were hired by uh, Cyrus, in Persia, who was trying to take the throne, Cyrus was was assassinated, and they were sort of left on their own. They had no one to work for anymore. So it was about them trying to find their way back to the Aegean Sea uh, through enemy territory and having all these encounters and battles along the way. And then finally, the, it's it's not the end of the of the account, but it's kind of the most famous part is when they finally, from a hilltop, see the ocean and they proclaim the sea, the sea. What's interesting, though, is in that, though, they're actually happy to get home. And I thought it's interesting at the end of Warriors, he's basically like, this is what we got. This is what we fought for. We fought to get back to this. Yeah. And so do you think when the movie ends and the credits go up, do he and Mercy leave New York? Do they travel or do they stay there? That's a lovely question. That's a good question. You know those conversations you have late at night, maybe after you've had a few too many, or it's, you know, Donna's approaching and you have these dreams, you have these aspirations. Yeah, we're going to get out of here. We're going to do these things. But then life takes over again. If it's the last thing we'll ever I don't do. Think, I don't think The Warriors is a very hopeful film overall. It's, it, has, it has kind of a minor key to it. I, I agree. Know. So I don't, I, and I, yeah, I don't necessarily have an answer. I'm, I, that's why I'm asking you guys. Yeah. I genuinely, it's like I want to believe that they do, but like you said, they have, you know, life comes in. Like maybe they don't. Maybe it's just something they talk about. Yeah, I, I kind of think that maybe they don't leave, that this is what their life can be, is they can just live to fight another day and to have this little patch of earth that's yours i'm i'm the wrong person to ask a question like that because to me what happens to mercy and swan is they're walking down the beach Mm. like when the story ends that's it 
and there hasn't been a sequel to this movie. There was a video game. Oh, was there? Did, yeah. So in the video game, did they leave? I have not played the video game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I tend not to speculate about, like, I don't, like, my mind doesn't work that way, I guess. Like, they're, they're walking me, down the beach to the Eagles. We never know. Joe Walsh. Right, right. But we knew that, but we, but we know that they've asked that question and that they've, that they've had that, they have that dream, so maybe. I, it's well, not about the actuality. It's not about whether or not they do or they don't do it. It's about the fact that they still have enough optimism that they can dream. Yeah. I will they say the... given up. And this is Mercy's dream. She wants to get away from this, this sort of low-rank gang that she's been hanging around with. Like, she, she sees something in the Warriors. She sees something in Swan that's, that's better, that has... That there's, there's, there's a better future there than... So maybe it's just baby steps. Maybe she's going to work her way up to one of the Gramercy Rifts eventually. But <laughs> move away from the Upper West Side... Coney Island. I don't know. I think that's not the uh, yeah. step up that she thought it was. Well, that might be more of a lateral the move. Bronx. They were still in the Bronx when they encountered the orphans, right? I don't know because I, I know that it was Van Cortlandt Park, but it was clearly Riverside Park, so I never really certain where they killed Cyrus. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I the only the only other thing that sort of I mean I I don't want to say bothered, but I, again I hadn't seen it for years, and I had not recalled all of the very un-PC language oh, yeah. in that movie. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and... It was, uh, that, that, that one warrior just uh, mm-hmm. took the F-word around quite a bit. He really he was, did. Uh, and not just the other F-word. And, and what, the other one that I didn't even understand, why, I mean, I sort of did, but not really, and I'm only going to say it because... It's just, it's not even a word I've ever heard, really, is one of the guys, I think it's actually Remar, James Remar, who says, we're going to get japped? And I thought, what? Did he say japped or jacked? He said japped. Because he, he said, said it. japped with a P, yeah. I yeah. Right. And I thought. What does that even mean? And I don't even know what that means. I mean, I that's can only know. assume that that's a World War II reference, but that seems really archaic to be saying that in the late 70s, I mean, that just seems really, I don't know. Is that some sort of sneak attack? Is that what that even is referencing? I guess that's the I only- I remember the use of it, but I don't remember the context. I, I think he first says it in the cemetery. Hmm. That maybe people are, the, the, I think it's maybe is a sneak attack or they're just going to get jumped. I mean, I don't think, I, they know that these people are after them, so I don't know how it could be sneaky. It's not like anyone, you know, is hiding. Like, they're out clearly coming after them. Although, weirdly enough, it, it occurred to me late in the movie that the warriors for most of the film don't know that there's, basically a hit been put out on them right they don't they just know think that, that it's that it's just the general chaos of of the you know of the shooting following that but they don't you know there's most that, of them that, don't don't realize that that they've been that they've been fingered for cyrus's murder there's that one scene with the punks uh where mercy says there are these got these guys they're after you and swan says i know but now they know i know so Throughout, like throughout their tr- travels that night, they are clocking the fact that people are after them. But, but they don't know, know why. I, I don't. I, I forgot about that. They don't really. They didn't really know that they were public enemy number one. Yeah. Because they weren't listening to Lynn Thigpen. 
culturally referenced in music in other movies uh and tv you go to coney island still there is nothing but warriors merch everywhere you look yeah you go on, i went online today just to read to rewatch the warriors and there's clips of the warriors now gray-haired and uh um with bad hips in the <laughs> the, the, the leather vests Oh, another thing which connects the Warriors to Xanadu is the vest. Yes. Vests and jeans. At least in Xanadu, he wears a shirt. And I suppose the toga is kind of like a vest. But, oh, God, 1979, 1978, 81, vest was still happening. Love it. But Harry Hamlin didn't need a vest. No, he just had... Because he just had the chest. His chest was his vest. Less vest, yeah. more chest. Less the chest vest. Perseus. That's what Coney Island is, is the place the Warriors come back to. Yeah. And one of the first episodes that we did of uh, Whiskey Flicks before we made it live when it was just the Midnight Movie Podcast is uh, Dan, myself, and a couple of friends and um, collaborators, uh, Jack Carp and Flip Wilson, saw the Warriors at the IFC, or was it Sunshine? It was at the Sunshine. It was in the middle of January, in the middle of a blizzard, we, we yes. made our way there. So we sort of had our own trek. We Yes, because we, 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 we trekked from Tribeca, which is where Flip lives, to the movies. Um, and that was one of the last movies that was shown in uh, Sunshine, which yeah. has been destroyed. They We work bought an old Sunshine Theater, which was an old Yiddish theater, and now it's just a hole in the ground. Yeah. But after we saw that movie the next uh, the next week, we went out to Coney Island and recorded the second half of the podcast in Nathan's and on the boardwalk. Oh, fun. And, and we did the best we could to sort of trace the warrior's path through Coney Island and the boardwalk out to the ocean. Fun, fun. It's one of the better episodes that we've done. Well, I listen to it on whiskeyflex.com. Well, I, we're just getting to that. I want to thank you guys for, for this. This has been a really fun talk. Ah, um, but well, I thank you. It's been <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. Um, where can people find you uh, on social media? The best way to find us is uh, both on Facebook and Instagram. We have a Facebook group on uh, on Facebook, obviously, on Facebook. called called Whiskey Flicks Live. So just join that group. And, and it's F-L-I-X, right? No, F-L-I-C-K. Okay, okay, okay. And Whiskey you can also... Flicks Live. Yeah, you can also find us on Instagram. And our Instagram page is called Whiskey Flicks Live. There are some underscores in there. And uh, you can see the updates about what what shows we're doing, what live shows, and what virtual shows we're doing, and just our opinions about some of our favorite movies. 
Yeah. And like, as of uh, today, it is uh, Saturday, May 22nd, as we record. So next week in real time, uh, May 28th, uh, Friday at 8 p.m., we're performing in person for the first time since 2019 at the City Reliquary in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And then two weeks after that, we, uh, we are doing a short online series starting June 11th called the Whiskey Flicks Live Big Dumb Summer Show. That's going to be two episodes um, Live, I believe we're going to be doing that Fridays at 8 p.m. on Zoom. Yep. Um, and uh, maybe we'll figure out how to say you can buy tickets um, later on. Um, and that's where we're going to be looking at big, dumb summer movies. Uh, the 11th and the, June 11th and then June 19th. Any words, Dan? I think so. <laughs> Dropping in a quick correction in real time. Uh, Whiskey Flex Live Big Dumb Summer Show will be June 11th and 18th. However... Join our Facebook group and follow us on Instagram, and you don't have to remember any of this, because I clearly did. There you go. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Emmy. Thank you, Emmy. Bye. I'd just like to make a correction. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned Rita Hayworth's character as being Tripsicore. That was incorrect. It's actually Terpsichore. Please join me next time when my guest will be Anne James as she discusses the new and emerging field of intimacy coordination. Good night.